ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I want to begin with a reference that I put in the email that went out. And it's something I found that I didn't know. I'm, I'm a bit of a space nerd. I like reading, studying about space rockets and all that. But I had never heard of this. I was looking for just stories of, you know, people talking about what gave them perspective. And I came across this. And it's that astronauts often have an experience that has now been deemed the overview effect. That they come back from space changed because of seeing the Earth from a distance. Especially the ones that went to the moon, because obviously they're seeing the Earth from a lot farther away. They get a different perspective. And what they talk about is seeing the Earth without any cultural boundaries or political boundaries. There's no countries when you're this far away. It's just a blue ball. In fact, they often talk about the fragility of the earth just sort of suspended in space. One astronaut, Edgar Mitchell, who was from Apollo 14, states this, you develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, look at that. And I can't finish the rest of his quote in church. But thats I thought that was so interesting. I thought it was very interesting given what we're going through that he even went into politics there. But just that idea of, I wish people could have this perspective of our earth. You know, I've noticed it as a pastor, especially as a youth pastor, that you deal with people and their worldview and their mindset. And if you can get them on the mission field, This is why I love short-term mission trips. So often people will say, well, you're not actually helping the missionary. That's usually true. It's more of a burden for the missionary. True. You're not actually bringing the gospel to that culture. That's usually true. That's It's best for long-term missionaries to go and do that. But what I have seen over and over and over again is when you get somebody out of their culture to a different place of the world, they get a different perspective on the kingdom of God. That this world is not all what they thought it was. There is so much more. Today, we're looking at what it means to have a kingdom perspective. To have our perspective of this world so enlarged by a proper understanding of God's kingdom that it changes how we look at everything in our world and in our lives. We are in the midst of a sermon series on Matthew that I've called The King Has Come. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messianic or the Messiah King. This is the King of the Jews, but even beyond that, he is the King of everyone. This is our King. And we're in this portion of Matthew where Jesus is preaching what is his first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about what it means to live in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. How is it different than just going about our lives, doing what makes sense to us? Kingdom living. Specifically, Matthew starts in uh, chapter 4, verse 17, before he gets to the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about Jesus begins his public ministry, and Matthew tells us that the theme of his sermons was to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Which raises the question we've looked at over and over again. Well, who? Who needs to repent? 
really those, those really horrible bad people, they need to repent, certainly. But what about us? What about everybody else? What about the Jewish people that were so self-righteous in who they were? What about the Christians that say, well, I've gone to a church for a long time. Surely that's, that must account for something. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about who is the one who actually keeps the law. And the gist of what he says there is no one. There is no one who perfectly keeps the law. So who needs to repent? Well, the lawbreakers, and that's, that's all of us. Matthew chapter 6, he moves on to hypocrites, people who do their acts of righteousness to be seen by and rewarded by others. And through that is also this undercurrent. We all have a tendency to do that at times. And in the passage today, Matthew 6, 19 through 34, he turns his attention to our perspective on life. What is our highest value? What do we consider most important? What fills our thoughts? And I'm going to suggest that Jesus presents us with two really challenging questions to diagnose our ultimate priority. The first question we'll look at is what do we treasure? What do we treasure? And the second is, what do we worry about? What do we treasure and what do we worry about? So let's start with this question of what do we treasure? What has that place of ultimate priority in our lives? And Jesus is going to use two images to challenge this. He talks about where we set our hearts and what is the quality of our eyes. And I think we get the first one. Hopefully the second one will be more clear as we look at it. Let's look at verses 19 through 21. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is our treasure? He starts with this command of what not to do. Do not store up treasures on earth. And he gives a reason. Well, it, you might lose it. Why work so hard to store up treasures on this earth when they can pass away at any moment? We tend to think we are so much in control of our stuff, our livelihood, our lives, our homes. My family went on a walk in our neighborhood uh, yesterday, and one of the places we went by was a home that had had a fire, and it's all boarded up. Do you think those people thought in that moment they would have to move out? They would have to leave? Where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Why work so hard and put all of our focus on things that are momentary and can be lost? He says instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And then he sums that up. I think we get that so far. Okay, I mean, even if you're into investments, which I'm not, because I'm really dumb at those things, and it's best if I just stay away from them. But if you are, you want to invest in something that's going to last. You don't want to invest in something that's just going to fall apart. Well, you want to know what's going to last forever, the kingdom of God. 
So he says that's where we need to put our focus. But now he links this with our heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart is where we have our desires set. It is what is our greatest priority. This is not just an emotional connection. It is a passion, a direction, a priority, an ultimate goal. And the point that Jesus is making is why make something ultimate in your life? Why make something your greatest priority when that thing is so completely insecure and can be gone in a moment? I think this is so evident when you buy a home. I remember our first home in Indiana. We bought it. A couple years later, we sold it, and there was this big, you know, buy a home. It's a great investment. We lost so much money on that home because the stock market crashed and all of those things that were so secure and certain. No, they weren't secure and certain. We own a home again now, and I, I enjoy owning a home, but I just spent probably five or six weeks trying to redo my deck, trying to get it back so it doesn't fall apart this winter. There's always something, and as I'm Doing these things, whether it's working on the deck or if the water heater or the dishwasher, whatever it is, you read the instructions. Right, guys, we read the instructions. Or fake it. Uh, But you read it, and you know what they often say in there? Well, every month you just need to do this. Every year, just do this. Every two years, and it'll last forever. And you read that and go, oh, that's easy. (laughs) And then you look around your kitchen at the dishwasher and the refrigerator and the oven and the microwave and the sink and the floor and the pantry and whatever else. And then you go to another room and you go, if I'm doing this every week or every month or every year, I'm never going to be able to keep up with all of this. It becomes overwhelming. And do you ever feel that way in your life? If I could just keep up. If I could just keep this plate spinning in the air, if I could just keep this priority going, if I could just make this work one more year. And Jesus says, where is your treasure? You know, we so often trust that the things of this world that we put value in are secure. And then years like 2020 come along. And you know, it's been a hard year. But in a sense, there is a goodness in it. And I hope as Christians we can look at that and say, global health is in question. We are not nearly as in control as we thought. The unity of our country is in question. We are not nearly as great and secure as we thought. We go through these times that God peels back this thin veneer that we have come to trust in of our own control. And he says, guess what? It's not true. God is God and we are not. And it's a good time to be challenged in years like this to ask ourselves, where is my treasure? Where is my heart? And then he moves on and he talks about the quality or the focus of our eyes. Look at verses 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This, I think, is tough to translate, that we don't use these terms so much. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. The setting that Jesus is using here is as if you are inside of somebody, inside their mind, inside the way they think. And that inside is a dark room. That's the image he's painting for us. And then he's saying, what is bringing light into that room? Kind of like a window, or he uses the idea of a lamp, a, a light. And he says the eyes are the thing that allow the light to come into our room, our innermost person, the darkness of who we are. And what he's pointing out is that the quality of our eyes, how good we are at choosing what we will focus on and what we look at, in a great way determines how lit up we are inside. Are we stumbling around in the darkness, stubbing our toes? Or do we have a light lighting the way? So when he says, if your eyes are healthy, or another good translation there is generous, and he's going to link this to money in a second, and I think there's application there, but a lamp that is generous gives off a lot of light. A window, this sounds weird, but a window that's generous lets a lot of light through. Okay, you with me so far? But if the lamp is stingy or unhealthy, That word can be translated either way. It doesn't give off much light. So the challenge here is, what light are your eyes allowing in? Are we so consumed with who we are and how we think that we're not allowing the truth of God to come in? Are we focusing on the day-to-day things of this world instead of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and we're not allowing the light of Christ to come in to us? The desires of our heart and the focus of our eyes are directly connected. Our heart will ultimately desire what our eyes constantly focus on. And so these two things go together. We may say that we hold certain things of ultimate importance. God is first in my life. Church is important. But then we need to look at where are my eyes focused constantly? What is it that holds that place of greatest priority in my heart? If we are focusing on lesser things constantly, then we have unhealthy or stingy eyes. And we have darkness inside of us. He's going to give one more thing before he leaves this idea. He talks about divided loyalty in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus has emphasized throughout this passage, choosing between two priorities or two ways of focusing in life. Now he takes it to another level of a master. And the image here is of a servant. And a servant has to know who the servant answers to. Who do I listen to? If one, if one master says, go to the store, and the other master says, go to the barn, who is the servant supposed to listen to? He is divided and conflicted. So the servant has to know who his master is. And what Jesus says here is problematic for us. Either he will hate the one and love the other. What does it mean to hate the one and love the other? I mean, isn't that a bit harsh, Jesus? Aren't we supposed to love all people? See, to us, the idea of hating something implies a judgment on that thing. Jesus is using a common Jewish way of speaking, specifically a way of teaching that uses hyperbole. Hyperbole is an exaggeration to make a point. 
But this phrase, hate the one and love the other, comes up a couple times in Scripture. It does not mean judging something as being horrible and awful and wrong and evil. What it means is, I chose this and I didn't choose that. If you come to me and, and with dessert and you offer me pecan pie or chocolate cake, as an American today, I would say, I love, cho- I love pecan pie. Oh, my heresy. That was so close. I love pecan pie. Okay? Now, in, the, in our American mindset, you would just say, oh, he's, he likes pecan pie more than chocolate cake. Okay? In their mindset, they would say, he likes pecan pie. He hates chocolate cake. Now, do I hate chocolate cake? If you didn't have pecan pie and you came to me and you offered me chocolate cake, guess what? I'd be fine. <laughs> So in the Jewish culture, somebody might come and offer these two things. And I say, oh, I love this one and I hate that one. Later on, you might come back and say, we're all out of pecan pie. Do you want some cake? Sure, I like cake. They don't have a problem with that. Love the one, hate the other is not an ultimate rejection in that sense. It is a statement of choice. What Jesus is saying is you have to make a choice. You have to choose. You can't go both ways. You can't, at an intersection, both turn left and right. You can't do it. You have to make a choice. And Jesus is saying, you cannot serve both God and money. And he makes it very clear, the two masters that we must choose between. This word word here for money sometimes is is transliterated, just mammon. It simply means earthly treasures or possessions or money. It has a very broad definition. And what Jesus is saying is we must choose between the stuff of this world or the priorities of the Lord God Almighty. We can't have it both ways. So 19 through 24 is about kingdom priorities. What do we treasure What do we value the most? Where is our focus in our life and in our time? What determines our priorities and who or what is our master? And I thought of another verse where Paul brings this up. And I think Bill actually used this in Sunday school this morning about setting our minds. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. This is Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died with Christ, or you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What I love about this passage is Paul is saying the same thing as Jesus Christ, but he's bringing in the gospel. He's saying, why should you set your life on things above? Why set your mind on these things? Because of who you are through Jesus Christ. The old you that was bound to the ways of this world, that was consumed by everything in this world, that person is crucified with Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, the old you is to be counted, considered as dead, buried, and gone. And the you, who you are in Christ, has been raised to new life, living eternally in the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying is focus your attention in the right place based on what Christ has done for you. The gospel must determine our priorities and our perspective in all things, in all ways, and at all times. So let me ask you, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? What are your highest 
priorities. Now, we might take stock of priorities in our life and say, absolutely, I treasure God high above all things. But now Jesus is going to approach this from another direction. And it's going to get even more challenging. Because we might think we have the right priorities or the right perspective. But to really get that at the heart of it, we need to ask ourselves the question, what do we worry about? What do we worry about? And I want to read, I don't have it on the screen because it's just too long, but I want to read Matthew 6:25 all the way through 34 because it all goes together. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus in our context today. Politics, COVID, whatever else you want to put in there. Listen to the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spend, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How timely is that? I mean, I don't know that there's any time in history that that's not a timely message for us as people because we are worriers. We tend to fret and get anxious over the things of this world. And Jesus here links this idea of what we are treasuring in the passage before, verses 19 through 24, with that which we worry about. For the one reveals the other. Now, I feel the need to step carefully to the side for a moment. Because it's very possible that there are people here going through intense difficulties in their life. And the call to just don't worry might come across as, who was that guy? Was it Bobby McFerrin? Who was the guy? Don't worry, be happy. Yeah. And, and if you are suffering and you're struggling for a Christian to say, oh, Jesus is in control. Just don't worry. Just be happy. That's like a slap in the face. That's not the application here. The other thing is, and I do think this is so applicable to our political process, but some people will say there are real issues. Abortion is a serious issue. Amen. It is. And to say just don't worry is not to make light of those things. So what are we talking about here with don't worry? Because we have real physical needs. Our families have needs and have concerns. Uh, Is Jesus saying that these things are bad to focus on, that we just shouldn't care about them at all? And the answer is no. That's not what he's saying. And let me show you. 
Number one, he talks about food. Food was a real issue, still is a real issue. We kind of need to eat or bad things happen. But most of us don't live our daily lives wondering if we're going to eat the next meal. Usually we're wondering if we're going to get, you know, the 11 o'clock snack or the 1 o'clock snack. We're basically a bunch of hobbits. We're just constantly eating. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's cool. Um, But he talks about food. Do you remember back to the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. You shouldn't worry about your daily bread. How dare you pray to God for that? He says right here, don't worry. Do you see what I'm saying here? Daily bread, food, is a real thing. It's a real need. He's not saying don't worry about it. He has already said bring that to the Lord. That's how important it is. Bring it to the Lord. But now he's also putting that in perspective. And he's saying, look at the birds. I have yet to see a bird driving a combine tractor with an irrigation system and plowing fields and sowing and reaping and storing away in barns. And yet, they're fed. God cares for them. He talks about clothing. And trust me, in case you've ever wondered, clothes are a real need. I'm glad that you all take that seriously. We need to wear clothes. It's good, especially in Rochester. It's cold usually this time of year. And he says, look at the flowers of the field. Solomon was the wealthiest king in all of Israel. And he says, not even Solomon was dressed as nice as that flower out there in the field that one day is just going to fall away. He says, God cares for them. So he's not saying that the need is not real. He's not saying that it's not important. He's saying it's so important, God is already caring for it. It's not that you shouldn't worry about it because it's unimportant. It's that you shouldn't worry about it because that's God's job, not yours. God knows and God cares. Look at verses 31 through 32. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. We spoke last week when we talked about prayer about the way the pagans would pray. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, actually 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And we talked about the pagan religion of that day, and this is still often true of, of many religions today. It had this idea that I have to use the right words. I have to have the right emotion. I have to be forceful enough to get the God or goddess's attention or the force or whatever it is. If I can manipulate God in the right way, then he has to answer me. And so I'm going to repeat something over and over again to try to get God's attention. And Jesus says, don't pray that way. And now he says, this same philosophy goes to our daily needs. The pagans run after these things. They lived in a world that if you owned a field, if you were a farmer, there was a certain god or goddess that you had to pray to and certain uh, offerings that you had to bring and they would bless your field and your harvest. If you wanted children, there was another god or goddess to pray to and certain offerings and they would bless that. And you put all of that together and what you have is me at the center of my universe and if I just do the right things, everything works out the way I want. Oh, they were deeply religious, deeply spiritual, but they still thought, that they were in control. Friends, I think too often as Christians, we do the same thing. 
Because we still worry and we think, if I could just do this, if I could just figure this out, if we could just do this as a church or as a culture, if we could just figure all this out and work this way, we just get the right person in the White House and everything will work out. And we sit there and we're just ringing and fretting over every little thing. And we tend to think that we are in charge of everything. And Jesus says, stop it. That's the worry you are not to do. The worry that puts you at the center of the universe and says you are in control. There are things we should be concerned about. We should be concerned about our children and our family. We should be concerned about our culture. We should be concerned about politics and about the political system and about our culture. We should be concerned about spreading the gospel in the world. But being concerned about it is so different than being worried about it. Worrying sits there frozen in fear thinking if I could just do the right thing, I would fix the right s- this situation. Or, usually it expresses it as, if those people would just do the right thing, it would fix the situation. True Christian concern takes these things to the Lord in prayer, first and foremost. And it is a recognition that he is sovereign, and he is on his throne, and he is in control of all things. And we will trust him. Now I want to go back to verse 33. Because Jesus really brings this home. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the solution to an ungodly, unchristian worry. Seek first God's kingdom. That's where our focus must be. That is what should be our greatest and ultimate concern. God's kingdom, God's righteousness. And as we focus on the kingdom of God and on his righteousness, we recognize he is the king, he is righteous, he is in control, he is sovereign, and he is carrying out his plan in this world. This is not to ignore our very real and important concerns. It is to understand that we have a loving, sovereign God who is already at work caring for those very things. Then we can focus our priorities on the things that are most important to God. So let me ask you, what do we worry about? Ultimately, worry and faith are contradictions. They cannot go together. We cannot believe in a sovereign God who knows all things and is working out his sovereign will in this world and yet say that we are worried that everything is going to fall apart. Those two things are at odds with each other. Worry says that if the wrong person gets elected, our lives are over or our country is over or the church is over. That's worry. Worry tries to hold on and control things that belong to God and that he is ultimately in control of. God is still on his throne. The church is going to keep displaying and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a mission to do, no matter who's in some house that happens to be white in D.C. Period. We're going to keep following God. Ultimately, worry is idolatry. 
It's praising, trusting, and focusing on something less than God. And instead, Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom, his righteousness, trust in his sovereignty. Friends, we need a kingdom perspective. We need to step back from the immediacy of all these pressures in our life, in our world, and they are real and they are hard, but we need to trust in a God that is so much bigger. If the astronauts orbiting the earth had a different perspective, if the astronauts that went to the moon had a different perspective, what if we could see our world, our culture, our politics, our lives, our health through the very eyes of God? What perspective would that give us? That's what Jesus is talking about. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And I don't want to leave us just feeling guilty. I don't want to just stop with with thinking, here's all the bad things we're doing. I just want to point out quickly two things in this passage that are incredible that Jesus is saying. The first is, these things that we treasure in this world and in this lifetime are nothing compared to what we have in Jesus Christ for eternity in heaven. Focus there. The second thing, those things that you're worried about that are consuming your thoughts, God already knows, is already at work and is sovereign over those things. So let us set our hearts on things above and on the gospel and on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your perspective We settle so often for lesser things. We focus so often on lesser things. And we fret and we worry. And God, so often we shoulder a weight and a responsibility that was never ours to bear. And when we worry, we put ourselves in the place of you on your sovereign throne and act as if we are in charge. We must have all the answers. We must have all the action to change everything or it's all going to fall apart. Oh God, that we would understand you are sovereign over heaven and earth. You've known the end from the beginning. You know each day. You know the very number of hairs on our head. You care for the birds and the flowers. You care so much more for And Father, as long as you are holding us fast, then we can keep trusting in you and keep our focus on you, keep our treasure in you. And Father, I pray that as we live that out in this world, may others look at the church of Jesus Christ and say there is a security there that I am not finding anywhere else. And may we tell them then about the King who has come to save us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.